Hello and welcome to Brain Stories. I'm Selena Ray and I'm here with my co-host Caswell Barry. On Brain Stories, we aim to provide a behind-the-scenes profile of the latest and greatest work in neuroscience, highlighting the stories and the scientists who are making this field tick. We don't just ask about the science, we ask how the scientists got to where they are today and where do they think their field is going in the future. So today we're really lucky to be joined by uh, Hugo Spears. So Hugo, who I've known for some time, uh, is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the uh, Department of Experimental Psychology at UCL. He did his PhD with Neil Burgess, and I know this because we briefly overlapped when I was a, a, a lowly master's student. I think Hugo might have been in his first or maybe second year of his PhD a long time ago. Um, after that, he moved on to do postdocs with Kim Graham in Cambridge and then uh, came back to UCL at the Wellcome uh, Trust Centre for uh, Neuroimaging, which is in Queen Square, where he was with Ellen Maguire. And after that, he um, he joined the IBN and became independent. And um, welcome, Hugo. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the on the podcast. Not, not at all. We're uh, we're very excited to talk to you. Um, there's loads of ground to cover. I've got notes down here which says taxis exclamation mark sea hero quest exclamation mark and Royal Institute of Navigation in exclamation mark and also six music Sophie Scott exclamation mark. So um, loads of cool stuff to go over. I guess the sort of unifying theme and feel free to correct me here about your work is that um, you're you're interested in uh, how the brain represents and moves through space. And I guess you've predominantly worked with uh, humans, so people uh, playing computer games in this case, and and patients. Um, but also I believe you have a, an interest in how people interact with architecture. Maybe we can also come to that. So where to start? I mean, I guess uh, I was talking to a taxi driver yesterday and actually mentioned, mentioned UCL, and he immediately talked about... Uh, taxi drivers having their brains scanned could you could you fill us in on what all what all that's about and why you're yeah. associated with that so there's various taxi drivers in london but licensed taxi drivers the ones in the black cabs also known as cabbie <clears throat> number of studies where uh, it's, it's been shown that, that their stereo hippocampus is larger um and indeed uh, changes with the training they do so the thing I find amazing about London taxi drivers is just what they have to do to get the job. They have to memorize like 26 to maybe 50,000 street names and how they're all connected. And the exam is, I'll pick two random places in London and you have to tell me every street connecting them. It's exactly on the shortest path. And if you go off by a little bit, you're not allowed your badge. And they spend four years training to get this, typically. And they'll uh, fail the exam many, many, many times before they're actually licensed. But the evidence over many studies suggests they do have a big hippocampus in their posterior part. And my role in that is really that we've, I was involved in several of the key studies that Ellen McGuire, uh, her lab, who've been really studying this from the beginning um, in Iran to, to show this. Um, and then I've been following up again in recent. So I've got a project called Taxi Brains running uh, where we've gone back and the imaging's obviously got better. We can look at structures in more, more detail, but I wanted to learn more about how they do their job. And so we've been, looking at how they recall routes through London and it's just um, blowing my mind. Uh, so yeah, if you ever get a chance to ask one of them to do uh, a readout of the streets and say, oh, you want to go from Piccadilly Circus to um, Maidavale Station, they in theory can tell you every single street that they'll take and, and read it all out. And it's just amazing to see them piece it all together. So yeah, they are. 
Yeah. It's incredible. And so this is this is what they call the knowledge. Is that right? Have I got the name? That's right. Yeah, oh, the knowledge. Yeah. Are there particular strategies that they can use to build up that kind of map of London in their brain? Yeah, that's that's a question. We we had a uh, research paper out uh, early this year where we documented that. It's a long paper. It's like a sort of anthropological study of sending a student to embed in the tribe and learn all the secrets they have and then writing it up. They use a whole toolbox of strategies to do that task. Um, the number one thing is that the government issue them a list of routes they recommend they follow to learn. The, the blue book runs. And so what taxi drivers, for for long as I am aware, um, will do is sit on mopeds with a map in front of them and memorize a particular route they need to learn. And once they've pieced all these together, they have an incredibly detailed knowledge uh, of, of London. And so each of these routes is like filled with facts they need to learn about the points of interest around it. And, the, and they're all interconnected like a large web. But the thing I think for, for neuroscientists, that seems like quite a practical thing. But some of the tri tricks I found really interesting as a neuroscientist were they would really focus on visualizing landmarks. They had like particularly taught to kind of in their mind's eye see things and picture them, uh, which is interesting. The other one was this sort of like ghost riding in their mind. So you do a route and it'll be this through the back streets. And some of them say that in their mind, also following another journey through space whilst they're following a current one, which is a very odd thing to do. Hmm. Uh, it's not something I've ever done, but it kind of, once you've got that capability. Um, and I think there's, I, I, for the research I've done, I had to learn tiny bits of London in enough detail to work with London taxi drivers. And it, there's something amazing about knowing a bit of space as well as taxi drivers do. They always used to say to me, oh, you know, 56,000 streets, it's all like my living room. When you want to reach out for the remote control, I just know where it is. You say Piccadilly Circus, I know where that is. Adam and Eve Court, I'll know where that is. It's just over there. It's it's absolutely incredible feeling of power that this knowledge gives the, the taxi drivers. You kind of own London, I think, is one way to look at it. Uh, but yeah, the, the, their brains do appear to be different, and we're we're trying to replicate the results again in 2022. Uh, we're waiting to press that button, which is a bit nerve-wracking, right? Yeah, I imagine. It. <laughs> what what do you think the um, new and more powerful imaging technologies is going to going to be able to reveal or add on to sort of the the core results? What are you hoping for? So the the data that's been published so far has really asked whether the posterior or the anterior hippocampus is larger or smaller. And um, obviously, there's a lot, a lot of substructures in there. So there are bits of the hippocampus, like the dentate gyrus, where there's debate about its its uh, role in neurogenesis. But there appears to be, um, you know, good evidence to think it's it's doing some interesting things. So it might be that the the changes that are seen in taxi drivers are really quite focal to some substructure within the hippocampus. And given its detailed connections, as, as, as Caswell, you'll know, it's a fascinating bit of the brain yeah. uh, with all these bits going in and out, very particular connections. So if we were to discover that the taxi drivers over their training experience actually see major changes in one of these particular structures, I think that would be quite an important theoretical insight to, um, to see. It's worth noting at this point that it's not just taxi drivers. I mean, that, that, the, the validation is not like taxi drivers are weird and this is really odd science. And I do occasionally come across people and say, what a load of junk, this sounds ridiculous. I think that's, you know, <laughs> and that is, a, that, is a, that is a kind of reasonable perspective as a scientist. You should be very skeptical as someone said, oh, taxi drivers have got a bigger brain. 
Well, it's like, no, actually, their brain's not at all bigger. It's just a, uh, you know, their posterior hippocampus is larger. And in fact, their anterior one is slightly smaller. Uh, but we also see these kind of changes in squirrels and shrews uh, and other animals where there's some change in their behavior that means they need to store, like uh, squirrels need to store nuts, you know, in winter, they need to memorize where they put things. And you can see changes in the size of the hippocampus in these, in these other mammals. So I think taxi drivers are just, when you realize what it is they're doing with their brain, memorizing like 56,000 streets and all they do at their day job is navigate uh it, it kind of makes sense to me um so yeah there's there's a lot we can learn and so do you think that their brains are different because they're really learning this information or are the people who pass the exam and get their badge able to do that because their brains are different if that makes sense it's a it's a great and it, it was a, a question that a funding agency funded so it, that was on the money so the, <laughs> and i can tell you the result that a funding agency funded so eleanor mcguire very quite rightly asked that question with katia willow who's a fantastic researcher in, in the lab they they katia uh, tracked down a whole lot of people waiting to train to become taxi drivers and a very boring group of people not training to be taxi drivers and then fo followed these people through and step one the first result she found was Taxi drivers' brains are boring before they start training. There is no difference at all to the other people who are not taxi drivers. They're kind of age and sex matched and so on. Um, so that's the answer to question one. They don't have a larger hippocampus, uh, evidence suggests, at the beginning of the training. But beautifully, by the end of it, so after four years, the boring people, like me, would count, no change in the hippocampus. There's no, you know, this is four years, so there's no decline in, in size or anything. But there was a significant increase in the posterior hippocampus of London taxi drivers after that four-year intensive training. But most beautifully, only for the drivers that passed the test. Oh, wow. So they, they, they had a whole group of taxi driver trainees who trained and trained and <laughs> didn't pass it. And, they, and, and for those, it wasn't like there was a little bit of an increase. It was as if they'd done nothing in terms of their hippocampus. That's uh, so this is, wow. yeah, so really beautiful piece of work. It was published in Current Biology in 2011. Yeah. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's a lot of work doing a sort of longitudinal follow-up with taxi drivers. So we're hoping we'll be able to track individuals over time now and follow a group of taxi drivers. That's certainly our plan. But um, these, these, this, this particular thing was people who want to train. So yeah, that, yeah, I agree. It's a really fascinating result. Do, do we know... Um... I guess maybe I should know the answer to this, but I'm not sure I do. Do we know what it is that's actually causing the the volume change? Is this the sort of much vaunted neurogenesis of the dentate gyrus, or is this just a bunch of new, bigger, better synapses? Does any does anyone know? And is it? I mean, I'm really intrigued by this thing about the the people who don't pass despite doing the training just don't show a, a volume increase. Is it possible there's some sort of uh, genetic predisposition that some people just have? higher level of plasticity and you can just load the information in more it just sounds awesome yeah I, I, those two there are two two great questions there um and i, I think that the, the as a scientist the answer we don't know is but often the the, the answer to question one yeah. I, I, both right um what we can say is you look at shrews and squirrels and so on it's not just neurogenesis there does seem to be remodeling of the, the synapses and so on so so it seems likely that the, the taxi driver effects we're seeing um you know, are probably to do with re remodeling of the, the synapses in the cells rather than new neurons being born. Uh, but it, you know, 
once we've done our higher resolution imaging analysis, we might have a better handle on where is this occurring? Is it in the region that people think neurogenesis occurs? Mm-hmm. That, that would be interesting. Um, and it's a good question as to why the anterior part actually declines in size. So it seems like the hippocampus is sort of shuffling towards the back. It's all moving backwards inside. It's obviously not. There's no movement of cells, but it's just that the, the density is, is distribution is changing. It's important to know Ellen McGuire has absolutely done some fantastic work in this domain, and I'm, I'm really following up on answering the bits that I think are missed. One of the key studies she did was to look at medical students and consultants and everyone on the whole medical ladder to see if, if you gain a vast amount of medical knowledge, uh, do you end up with a larger hippocampus? Is it just storing that knowledge? And the answer was no, medics are boring. <laughs> Their brain doesn't change. I bet the taxi drivers love that. <laughs> love that. They, they, Can yeah, we have that a bit louder? I'd like to play that to a lot of my colleagues. <laughs> Their brains, yeah. I'm sure this is fascinating. Medics are boring. Yeah. Yeah. It's proven. Their brains don't change. Proven. Their brains don't change. And it's also true of London bus drivers. So uh, a, a lot of good questions about the taxi drivers sort of fit along the lines of maybe it's just driving every day, all day that drives it. Maybe it's the London pollution that's driving this. Dealing with annoying customers might drive some of these things. So, so it, none of that, all of that sort of corrected forward bus drivers and they don't show a, a larger hippocampus. So there's been a lot of, this is sort of well-studied uh, domain of research, but in 2022, we do want to see if we could replicate with a large group of, of taxi drivers. And, you know, we've asked them millions of questions about their lifestyle. You did ask another question there, which was, uh, is it is there a propensity for it genetically? Mm-hmm. And, and that's a really great one. We don't know. Um, you know, I think if we get down the line, if we get a huge cohort of taxi drivers, we might be able to look at the genetics, but you're never going to have the vast numbers you need to really genetically profile um, a group. But yeah, uh, we don't know. And that's, that's a really un- an interesting unknown. Uh, is there a propensity? Um, I certainly think not everyone can memorize that amount of spatial information and piece it together. There is, there's got to be some sort of predisposition, I think. Yeah, I, I could well believe that. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's just sort of uh, yielding so many potential sort of questions and, and hopefully the answers to them as well. Um, now, we've, we, there's, lots of, there's lots more to cover. We can't just stay on taxis. Um, so I've noticed you appearing in the, uh, on various forms of media that even reached me quite a lot recently, Hugo. And uh, Selena was pointing out that she'd, uh, she'd, she'd heard you on Six Music uh, on, or heard about you on Six Music, I should say, um, with Sophie Scott. Um, and this is all in the context of uh, the awesome Sea Hero Quest. Could you tell us a little bit about that? What it is, why it is I've heard of it, how it is you got an N in excess of 3 million, I believe, on the, on one of your studies, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, this is, this is a long story. I'll try and create a nutshell. Like, what is the story in a nutshell? Is that Sea Hero Quest is a video game, a fully commercial video game that people can download on the App Store of Google Play and play on their mobile phone. And it's a video game. You play a little boat that you sort of steer around these different uh, tropical, mystical islands and different uh, sea seascapes looking for mystical sea creatures. But crucially, the reason I'm attached to it is that while you're playing it, the game stores locally on your phone coordinate information, uh, trajectory information about anyone playing the game and the task of the game just happens to be, because we designed it, navigating. And the reason we designed this game, Sea Hero Quest, test navigation, was that um, really there's been a drive in the, in the Alzheimer's field to try and build more tools that really tap into some of the core diagnostic early features. 
Um, and back, the, the projects kicked off in 2016, and there was a real drive in sort of around 2016, can we build better you know, disease monitoring tools? And spatial navigation has always been on the checklist of clinicians looking to see what, whether someone might be experiencing the early signs of Alzheimer's becoming disoriented. Um, but you know you can't test that in a in a in a, in a GP surgery whether someone's you know navigating well they they vary you need to have some standardized tests so Sierra Quest provides the aim was to provide a standardized test and the project was funded by Deutsche Telekom T-Mobile and that made a significant difference because they one of the there's a lot of different angles to this story I could talk about but one of the one of the reasons we were so successful with it was that the they want this company wanted to achieve a, a sort of reach out with their branding to do something good and so they wanted their brand to appear next to we we're fighting alzheimer's disease and the, we brought in alzheimer's research uk the fantastic funding agency who is a charity that support this and they've backed us all the way so working with these two two organizations meant there was it was enough money on the table to employ a commercial games company which are not cheap <laughs> They're quite an expensive, uh, if you want that Hollywood-style budgets to make uh, really good video games. And there was advertising. So when I run a study and I say, oh, I'd like to recruit for participants, I don't normally have a large advertising budget to go and make sure my game or task appears on YouTube or on Google, just pops up in the advertising section. So so that made a huge difference, Caswell, like, to, to this project, was that A, we were setting out to, to build this kind of diagnostic tool to create the world's big, world-like, global benchmark of how well people navigate. And um, yeah, we were able to reach out. And as you mentioned, in fact, we got over 4 million downloads, wow. which we were we were blown away. In the first weeks, they came back. And so we said, we were hoping, because the previous big project, after a year, just around the year before, it collected 20,000 people. And that seemed off the scale for what normal studies did. And so we thought, well, we've got a bit, a bit of budget here. Um, we'll get maybe 100,000 or something. And we got 100,000 within a week of download of it opening and launching. Um, I think we'd underestimated the global reach of a, tele a telecoms company. Mm. So, so one of the aspects of this research study is that if you, if you are able to partner and get a, someone like that on board, you can do things you wouldn't otherwise do. It's, it's, I, you know, it's a, it was an opportunity that really came our way. We didn't knock on their door. They knocked mm. on our door. Mm. And the, the door they knocked on was uh, my good friend Michael Hornberger, who's professor of dementia at uh, University of East Anglia. Uh, and he, he really took the idea to them and said, look, Hugo and I would like to, to build this test and, uh, uh, and do this. And they, they went with this over lots of other possible projects. We were very fortunate. Um, but yeah, you can imagine with 4 million <laughs> people's data, that you, you, we're, you know, we're still kind of uh, working away years later to, to, to really understand what's in there. And we published a number of papers and we've got quite a few under review and we've got several in prep and they're just it's it's a joy to have that level of precision to say um you know is this or is this not and so you know i don't want to preempt because of all the publicity but one of the factors we've, we've looked at with seven hundred thousand people we've really identified and screened in on because you can mm -hmm. you can really focus on it we, with big data like that we find absolutely nothing like, there's no effect of this this thing that theoretically should have some effect and it's quite amazing to see you can get effects. We had a, we're very fortunate to have a nature paper in, in March where we went through the editorial process in nature and it finally made it over the line yeah. with one of the other bits. So I'll talk about that if you're, if you're happy to. Yeah, but, yeah, definitely. But it's, it's, it's been a hell of a ride. And 
it, a lot of the work on that project is really logistics and planning and interacting with making games designers, uh, you know, making sure that worked. We had a valid game that wasn't just a piece of science, but people were downloading it to, to play it for fun. So I'm one of your four million, and I have to say I'm appallingly bad at the game. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Oh, I think no, we'll ask that in the next question. But for anybody who's listening who hasn't played, I mean, I would really encourage you to go and download it because it's such a beautiful interface and you know you can play it with it without having any idea that it's for an experiment which is exactly what you're aiming for really it just just feels like a game um yeah it's beautiful so i'd love to hear a bit without trying to take it too personally about what you found in in your latest nature paper and what insights you've got from this data yeah, I should first up say that the game is available on the uh, App Store and Google Play, but you can only get into it now with a code. So you need a research study to um, give you a code to get back in now. So I think on, on the podcast, you can leave details. They can contact me. If anyone wants to play Sierra Quest, they can get in touch with our research team and we'll provide codes for them to, to get okay. in. Um, so yeah, that. So so yeah, and it's it's great. So I should also say we'd much rather have people go in and 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 uh, find it really hard and and like think, oh, I'm terrible at navigating. This is difficult. That's much better for us because if everyone just does it and they're fantastic, we don't learn very much. Science <laughs> is really all about errors. If you you know you build an experiment like Caswell do with rats and they just run and they do nothing. There's no mistakes and nothing. Mm. It's you can't tell very much about the behavior. So that's first step. So yeah, anyone who's bad at navigating, please go and play it. It's great. We absolutely value people who are bad, even possibly more than people who are who are good. Because although you, Selena, you think you're probably doing badly, you would be you know shocked at the scale at which it's possible to be bad. And you know, even taxi drivers, <laughs> taxi drivers will say there's there's one way to do it perfect, and there's a billion ways to do it you know the wrong way to go between two places. And that's kind of true in the game. Um, and the thing I love about the data, or we'll go into the study we published, is that with, with data like this, you've got 4 million people and no two people that will have taken exactly the same path. So you've got the capacity to kind of profile the fingerprint on 4 million people uh, and see what is it that's going on there in the data. So it's, it's really exciting data from that, that perspective. That's amazing. And indeed going, yeah, so going into that, it's like what we've done so far is really quite boring. So for our, our recent Nature paper, we were very fortunate to be on the front cover. We, my, uh, the first author, Antoine Coutreau, who we, we hired as a, as a postdoctoral fellow to start the work, is now fully you know, has a CNRS position and has really built his career on this. He um, suggested some designs to the, the team in Nature, and they, they ran with uh, one aspect of it, and it was great. So why, why were we on the front cover? Why was it a picture of Prague and Chicago overlaid for that month? It was very strange. Um, what we asked in Sierra Quest are a whole lot of background demographics. How old are you? What's your age? So what's your, your gender? Um, you know, do you uh, travel much? And a whole lot of questions we kind of honed in on. One of them was, did you grow up in a city or in a rural setting or some mix of these? Uh, on the hunch that the environment you grew up in might have some impact on navigation skills. And the perspective at that point was really it could go either way because cities are really complicated. There's a million decisions you can make. Looking at the taxi driver is a good example of how many ways they can travel between points. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, there's a lot of easy guidance. You know, you can maybe use sat navs quite efficiently in cities. So rural settings may be more hard. You've got to go longer distances and keep track of your changing directions. There's a good reason to think these might matter. Uh, and they certainly did. We were really shocked when we looked at the data 
that we could see really quite large effect sizes for uh, growing up in cities worldwide. We found that there was a negative effect to growing up in a city, which was a sort of puzzle. It's like, what is it that specifically cities? So even just getting a bit of a mix seems to improve. And the question was really about where did you grow up? It's not, do you live now in a city? It was, did you grow up in a city? Mm. So, net, so on average, across the world, uh, across 38 different countries on every continent, not Antarctica, I would say that, um, but on, all, on most of the co continents of the world, um, we can see that cities are, on average, bad for your navigation skill. But we delved into this, and we had a great you know, process of diving into the data, trying to understand it more. And one of the key insights was just looking at which countries is this effect really big in. And it was really big in Canada, the US, Australia, Argentina and a few other places where if you think about it and you've been to these countries, I'm sure uh, Selena and Caswell, you've been to SFN in a number of locations, mm -hmm. thinking of Chicago, yeah. it's really, really gritty. Uh, and you yeah. can just sort of work out how you're going to get somewhere by the number of blocks you've got to go. So the demand on navigating is much, much less than, say, London or Prague or somewhere else, or Rome or Sao Paulo is an example of an incredibly intricate city. So the beautiful thing was that a geographer had spent time analyzing the street layouts of all these different major cities in the world and quantifying how disorganized these streets were and scoring that as a metric of entropy. So, so this classic uh, measurement that's used in physics and lots of disciplines of how disorganized is a system mm -hmm. and you can look for cities. And that was helpful for us because we could then show there was a strong negative correlation between how bad cities affected you and how gritty the streets were. So the more gritty the streets, the stronger the negative effect of growing up in cities was. Um, so, so for example, the effect size is much, much bigger in the USA than it is in most of Europe for growing up in cities. And for some European cities, in fact, it's countries, it makes no difference growing up in, in cities at all. Um, so we then had a handle on why. Why are cities bad? It's not cities are bad for you. And indeed, somebody hand wrote me a letter on golden paper saying, I think it's fluoride. I disagree with the conclusions in your paper. It's always, you, you get enough media coverage, you'll get, you get sort of crazy um, letters. But we can then see it seems to be gritty cities. And then the beautiful thing Antoine did was to pull apart our game levels. We had 45 levels that Selena, you will have played your way through. Maybe not all of them. Not everybody gets all the way to the end of the game. Um, but we not can... all of them. <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's you really stuck hard. on level one, Selena. <laughs> not far off. <laughs> So the, the great thing was then looking at these countries where people the cities have a really strong impact. So people who grew up in cities where there's a big impact of gritty cities um, are really sensitive to how gritty the levels are. So a really, they'll, they'll do really badly on the most entropically disorganized game levels. And actually, and quite interestingly to us, they've got a slight advantage in the gritty levels in the game. So someone from Chicago actually is slightly better in a gritty level in the game. Amazing. So the title of the paper we published in Nature is not Cities Are Bad For You, <laughs> Get Out Of Them. It's <laughs> that they shape your navigation skills. Mm. So they kind of, you, you kind of adapt your, the way, it's a bit like, you know, I, I, when I walk into a new house, I expect most of the rooms are gonna be rectangular. Yeah. You know, they're not gonna be curved and oval. Um, and I think this is what's happening effectively for, and that's what we say in the paper, you kind of, it shapes your expectations about what will happen when you navigate. And I, so, yeah. I, this suggests a, a question to me that I really want to know the answer to. These blending the two things we've been talking about. These these taxi drivers that pass the knowledge. Where are they from? Are they all from London? There's not many gritty cities in the UK, but I'm pretty sure 
Glasgow no. is quite gritty. I know it's used to stand yeah. in the, for US cities in um in a lot of Hollywood films. Is there? Are, are you tempted to to put two and two together and get ten million? <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you mean by the question we should be looking at our taxi drivers uh, phenomenally good at navigating? I guess um, what I'm taking from this is sort of your childhood experience of a certain sort of layout uh, is predisposing both your general navigation ability, but also setting up sort of some prior beliefs about how what the layout of a city should look like. And so I'm curious whether that plays out in taxi drivers. I mean, I guess... Oh, yeah. Are, they, are all the black cab drivers actually from London and you just need you just need to have been exposed to it yeah. at some level to actually even have a chance of like passing the knowledge or yeah. could could you get uh are there any cab drivers in driving cabs in London from Chicago is basically what I want to know I would I would put, I put my mortgage on the fact that will be no taxi drivers from Chicago who, who spent their <laughs> life growing up in Chicago who, who then go on not because it's going to dispose uh, it's going to put them off but um it's very likely the kind of disposition to become a taxi driver is to have got a lot of years of kind of feeling like you know London. You start to think, oh, I could do the knowledge. I know lots of bits of London. Mm-hmm. In our study, we actually, one of the best stories we had, um, the team running the study said, one of the taxi drivers, we asked them this, why did you do this? Why did you do the knowledge? And this one guy said, said oh, it was to marry my wife. <laughs> he said, he said her father, his, his father-in-law, now his father-in-law said, you're not going to marry my daughter unless you can do the knowledge. That's, <laughs> so, uh... And so he set out four years to memorize London, pass the knowledge exam and marry this taxi driver's daughter. And he's spent I mean, his whole career loving it. So that's true. I'm someone sweet. who loves you as much as that taxi driver loves his wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, so there's a really, uh, is, uh, they are a wonderfully diverse group. They are not all from one small region in Essex. You know, you will get a, a it clumps a taxi driver. And they're historical regions of London that tend to have groups of taxi drivers. Um, but they are, they're real characters. I mean, I've really enjoyed every bit of work I've done with taxi drivers. So the ones who come forward for the research are also the ones who are up for helping out with charity. And they, the other thing that working with taxi drivers and where they really seem to get involved in charitable work a lot more than other sectors there. So I have a lot of time and respect for London taxi drivers. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, I, I think... One thing that was odd, actually, going back to your point about Glasgow and the UK, uh, is that when, in 2016 we got the data in, I noticed that, that the whole cluster of European cities were kind of in a big central mass. Um, we're all pretty gritty and there's not much impact of cities. For some reason, the UK was kind of like out there like a Brexit nation, Brexiting from the rest of the uh, cluster of countries where it is worse in the UK growing up in a city. Oh, wow. uh, I, we don't have a good answer as to why. They're just It's an anomaly in the data chart where the, where the sort of annoying bit of salt in your data yeah. <laughs> that doesn't, doesn't fit. Uh, Norway was kind of there as well. So it was like nations that don't like have a euro and are kind of slightly out there seem to be. But I, I'm almost certain that's a, a red herring, obviously. There's very little chance that yeah, yeah. Uh, that's driving it. Wait, so you you heard it here first. The euro is good for your hippocampus. Is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a bit like eating lots of chocolate is associated with Nobel prizes. <laughs> chocolate production for a country and Nobel prize incomes highly correlated. How interesting. Coming back to this idea of, of kind of cities being bad for navigation, is there potentially an element here of use it or lose it? Because I think often how reliant i am now if i need to get from a to b i'm entirely reliant on following the blue dot on my iphone 
mainly out of convenience and should I you know should we not be doing that should we be trying to tap into our navigation skills a little bit more yeah uh yeah I I, I certainly think that's the case and I think we're we're at the moment we're in 2022 you can either kind of use the blue dot in a system like Google Maps and uh, you know follow that through or you can try and scratch your head and try and memorize it there's nothing in between and so part of my research projects, we tried to, we, we failed. It's great. I, as a scientist, I actually quite like when things really fail and you think, wow, we really got it wrong. So we've been trying to figure out how we can get somewhere in between those two, between you just scratching your head like a taxi driver, kind of go, how is this all connected? And, oh, I'm going to be late now because I've made a mistake or the blue dot. And it's somewhere in between, in my view, is that you need some system that's going to highlight uh, the kind of key mistakes you're going to make in a route and help you memorize it. And we don't have that kind of tool yet, but it would be great to have an augmented system that said, don't worry about the blue dot, but let me tell you, this is what you need to do. Run down instructions to get somewhere. And now you can use your hippocampus, to your, your long-term memory to do that. And I think that would be quite a, a fun system. Hmm. But again, you're kind of on the money with the funders. So one of the other funded projects <laughs> that Ellen McGuire ran was to go after retired taxi drivers. And the title of the paper was Use It or Lose It. Um, and uh, the this is a philosophical transactions article in 20, 2009 uh, where um, effectively we tracked down 10 retired taxi drivers after a year of painstaking work because you can carry on into your late 90s being a taxi driver um, oh, so nice. these chaps are all people who had to stop for various medical reasons and their hippocampus was not as large their posterior hippocampus as the full-time age equivalent taxi drivers but it wasn't as small as the non-taxi drivers, bus drivers, for example. Hmm. So it did seem, but it's it's the most sort of scant evidence base to say use it or lose it might well be the case. Um, but yeah, it'd be lovely to follow that up, but it's very hard to find retired taxi drivers. Yeah. So Hugo, I've been desperate to ask you this since we started recording. Um, you gave us a little teaser on Twitter um with a little poll where you said which celebrity do you think screwed up one of our research experiments and the people on that list were will self um cal pilkington benedict cumberbatch and richard bacon now not none of them are taxi drivers so i know it must be unrelated to to this and um, but i'm desperate to find out who it is and what they did to screw up one of your experiments <laughs> So the, I, I was very keen. I've never used Twitter poll, so this was a good opportunity to do it for this podcast. So I'm very grateful to 101 people that filled out that poll. Um, and the, the key thing with each of those four people, there is a story behind every single one of those celebrities. Uh, they've all worked. In fact, they've all worked. Three of them have, have worked with us on, on projects, and one person didn't work with us on projects and just screwed up an experiment. Um, so I can tell you the winner, the actual correct person. And I was impressed that Twitter, the Twitter poll... Uh, the group vote, and you say put it to an audience to vote on it, we're on the money. So Benedict Cumberbatch screwed up one of our experiments. That's who um, I voted for, so I'm glad I got the right answer as oh, well. You did. I thought it was Will Self, damn it. No, no, exactly. So I'm glad you voted the way, because if everyone just voted for Benedict, then it would be a bit like, oh, you know, well, it's obvious. It was so obvious a point. I was quite glad, actually. He was doing very well initially, Benedict. Uh, but then um, 
uh, Tim Barron's intervened. With a <laughs> what what were you doing? Like, we need more content. What, what? Just imagine, like, you and Tim and Bendit Cumberbatch walking down the street or something together. Like, what was what was happening? <laughs> no, no. So, so Tim Tim intervened on Twitter to suggest it might be Carl Pilkington, and then Pil- Pilkington was in it was uh, you know in the lead for a while, and then got pipped at the post before the poll closed by Bennett. And it's very close but, between them as well. Yeah, so. yeah. It's kind of an but, interesting question of who people think would screw up something. Yeah, um, everyone seems to think that Richard Bacon is very trustworthy, judging yeah. by his results. No one thought was it was intrigued. him. I thought a lot of people might not know who he was in the US, maybe, who were entering mm-hmm. the poll. That's possibly True. why he got low votes, maybe, or Will Self. So it was kind of the two people people had heard of for getting the votes, as I suspect was going on. But the story behind Bennett, so what, what is, why is he listed as someone who screwed up? So we were running, a, we'd run an, a, a really successful brain imaging study where we'd taken film footage and recreated Soho in high definition film inside an MRI scanner and had peered inside people's brains and, and seen all sorts of bits going on while they navigated the film footage. And we thought, great, well, we've got these amazing, um, you know, the advances recently in EG, electroencephalography, mobile EG can be done. As so we thought we'd try out just setting up a system when this technology is ready, we'll take people out of Soho and we'll actually record their brains whilst they're navigating in situ in Soho. And we got the whole system to work. It was doing great. And one of the participants was really hard, diligently navigating Soho, trying to get to a bar that we'd instructed them to get to. And um, I wasn't there, but I heard from the team, they just stopped in the middle of the experiment and screamed. You know, and you know, with, with the experiment, you want people to just like do the task and do it. They screamed and ran over the street, screaming, Benedict! And it was, it was Benedict Cumberbatch, Cumberbatch just walking down the road, just as you do in Soho as a celebrity. And this woman, and this is the thing, this woman screaming his name. He's just really like walking, relaxing, walking through Soho. Um, this woman screaming his name, running at him over the road with her head covered in wires. <laughs> and, and his face, I think I can imagine, must have been somewhat surprised and confused. But yeah, obviously that, that entire day's data was just screwed up by um So he, he, didn't, he didn't sort of do anything bad. He was absolutely lovely. I'm sure he signed her autograph and, oh. uh, and was absolutely charming. I cannot imagine anything other than that with, with Benedict Cumberbatch. What so a yeah, he, 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 story. so we lost, yeah, we lost data from Benedict Cumberbatch. With Richard Bacon, I worked with Richard on a project on Channel Four where we tested thousands of people to find the best navigators, and then put them through this Soho test. And the top, uh, top applicant, a person through all that was just unbelievable, like a robot solving things in under a millisecond, wow. and getting all these decisions right. But um, that was so that was great fun. Where Richard was just amazing to where he's full of energy, really full of energy as a as a presenter, and uh, it was a great fun project. And that project with Richard Bacon uh, at the end, they put they took the top person and threw them into the hills in the middle of Wales near Snowdonia, in like the most disparate part of it, and made them just find their way. But had an army team kind of train them to find their way back. Uh, and my son Max was four at the time, and half the film footage of it, he's sleeping in the in the vehicle, right, just off <laughs> offset with Richard Bacon because he couldn't get him out. So anyway, that was interesting from Richard Bacon, and yeah, he didn't screw anything up. The other two to to wrap up are um, Will Self. We we managed to scan Will Self doing the Soho experiment, getting his thoughts on what was going through his mind while he was being brain scanned. Mm-hmm. And everyone else who asked this question says things like. Oh, oh, I was doing your task. You told me to. Well, Self said something like, I was thinking about sex, death, and Margaret Thatcher. I was doing your task. Not at the same time, I hope. Yeah, well, there's Will Self. He was, he's, again, utter joy to work with Will Self. He was so funny. 
uh, and sardonic. You know, he's you know he's exactly like you, you can imagine he is. Yeah, a real hero. And then the last person on the list was Carl Pilkington. I couldn't believe it one day. I got an email from Carl Pilkington saying, "Can I come and have an, a can I have a brain scan because I'd like to put it in my book as a picture." And so yeah, Carl Pilkin just popped in for one day for, to our brain imaging uh, system, and we we scanned his brain and made it into his his uh, insightful book, Carl Pil Carl Ol uh, Pil I think it's Carlology, his book on uh, exploring science, and uh, and he did indeed have a very spherical head and, and brain, as uh, he's famous for. And the people don't know Carl Pilkington. He's I imagine some most people will, but there might be some people who don't know Carl Pilkington. He's a kind of broadcaster. He was originally a, a, a an editor, I think, and has spent an extensive career working with Ricky Gervais yeah. and uh, Steve Merchant. But yeah, he he was charming. Asked a ton of great fundable research questions, actually, uh, which really was impressive because he's famous for being stupid. But he asked some questions about neuroscience. I thought, bloody hell, sorry to swear. Um, that's a very good question. Interesting. He's, uh, if, if you're trying to imagine what he looks like, several people have told me I look like him, which I'm not 100% pleased with. Although they also say I look like Dominic Cummings, so I don't know which one I'd rather take. <laughs> um, this is so fascinating, Hugo. I mean, we, I'm, I'm just aware that we're sort of clocking through the time talking about all the many exciting science things you've been involved in. And we haven't really got to uh, to talking about you, which, which we'd really like to, because, you know, you've been on quite a journey i mean you've done all these different things i know you also uh do animal-based neuroscience and i guess we just want to understand how this has sort of uh developed was this always the plan where did you how did how did your interest in sort of spatial neuroscience start or is it something that's just naturally evolved along the way yeah i think it's evolved along the way but i guess there's a sort of sense of an epiphany moment uh in science where you discover so you read an article you look you discover something and you think wow, that's mind-blowing. And for me, that was really uh, reading about place cells, which Caswell, I know, is a, an expert in the field. You spent your career recording and studying place cells. And this is a phenomenon. So these are, these are the cells in the hippocampus, uh, the ones with the taxi driver we've been studying that are very large. But in, in, in rats that have predominantly studied, um, these cells are discovered by John O'Keefe and Jonathan Dostrovsky, and won, he won, John won the Nobel Prize. Long story there. But these cells are mind-blowing because of how they appear to create this sort of multimodal representation of space deep in the brain in this highly central kind of part of the brain, the hippocampus. And, and this, I mean, you could list on a, a long list of all the crazy, amazing things these cells do. Um, but the question would be, I, I found that mind-blowing and amazing, and I, I didn't jump straight into studying plague cells. Uh, I think there wasn't, there wasn't a project available to do that when I was a student. The project I fell into was studying patients who'd had their hippocampus removed surgically to see if they were having problems navigating. And indeed they did, if it was removed in the right hemisphere. Um, so I started my career in neuropsychology um, and then moved to brain imaging and then the rats. So I think, I think yeah, it's, it's, been a, it's been a very, you know, a journey. I've focused on space the entire time. I've always been interested in, in how we represent space, partly because I think space is... A tangible thing you can measure but it's the sort of fabric of reality it's what what uh, is out there so we've got all these things in space houses people cars everything's out there but it fits into a space and it's philosophically an interesting concept to think what is space and then you can study it in the brain and sort of get a sense of the kind of the matrix inside our head this reality that our brain creates at a level that i find 
interesting as opposed to say how do brain cells represent lines and bars or the color red or other people are interested in i find space absolutely compelling and also the sort of sense of how a brain builds a map uh, maps inherently are, are interesting objects mm. but how the brain does that so i think probably i could go through a very boring list of my career and you, you started the program with who i've worked with but i think the interesting bit to pull out as a short nugget was i'd worked away with humans for maybe eight years and you know, got to a second postdoc, point you should just really settle down and start a lab and do what you're good at now, right? And that's exactly what I didn't do. Uh, I was very glad I didn't do that. I didn't just set, settle and, and, and build a lab. It was a Thursday afternoon. I spotted there was a, a funding call where you could apply to literally, and you could only obtain the funding for this if you switched track completely. <laughs> you had to show evidence you were going to drop what you were doing and learn something else. And this was the Wellcome Trust Advanced Training Fellowships at the time. Um, and this provided three years personal money. But I found it on a Thursday and the deadline was Monday. <sighs> <laughs> so I got it and I got it. The most stressful thing is Casdo and Salini will know is, is getting a budget yeah. even drafted and yeah. approved by a team in UCL on a Friday for a Monday deadline. Yeah. Uh, and it turned out Monday was a bank holiday, if I remember right oh. as well. <laughs> So we had, but me I did manage to. High blood pressure. Just talking about oh yeah, this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, 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 I pulled it off luckily, but it's probably one of the biggest pull-off uh, heists in my, in my career. But it was a case of then tr tr rapidly trying to design like three years of rat-based electrophysiology experiments, not having ever done a single one in my life. And uh, you know, very, very huge thanks to Kate Jeffrey for being on the phone, on email a lot who agreed to take me into a lab to, to, to run this. Uh, and we went after what I spent a lot of my time doing, which is goal coding. How might the hippocampus represent places you want to go to as opposed to where you currently are? Uh, and that changed everything. So I've, I've now managed to publish a number of um, studies and several with Caswell. And um, we've got a, a new paper that I think may well be out in current biology by the time this podcast is released or around it, where we've been looking at rats and comparing. Uh, I think that, that that for me, we've got a paper coming out, Caswell and I worked on, where um, for me, this is a, a really exciting point where I've spent years studying humans, years studying rats, and finally pieced them together in one paper to show in the same exact framework, same exact task, how do they navigate? And they're really similar, surprising yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, but it's it's been a joy doing, doing that. And uh, yeah, so I, I think their career trajectory is kind of a, a career experiences saying yeah take these things go for it the only other anecdote is i think i think as a boring bits of career stories is on april fool's day <laughs> in 20 <laughs> 2009 i got an email that started congratulations you've been awarded six hundred thousand dollars all you need to do is write back with and blah blah, blah. and I, I i didn't even read further because you know you'd get emails around at the time hi i'm a nigerian prince i have got one million dollars to and a week later, I got an email that said, uh, did you see our email requesting you apply for $600,000? You now only have a week left before the deadline. Would you like to apply before we hand this over? And I realized, oh my God, this was real. And oh, wow. again, I had to cobble, I had to cobble a six-year research plan together in a week and get the, the, all the funding approved and everything. And uh, again, luckily in that scenario, it came off. Uh, and I, I was awarded $600,000. Of, which was paid for in Boeing shares from the uh, James uh, McDonald Foundation as a scholar award. Absolutely crazy funding. Um, so yeah, the nutshot, my, my advice to people is, yeah, keep your eyes open when, when things look 
uh, too good to be true. Sometimes they, they might actually be true. Or, you know, funding deadlines come up and you think, there's no way we can do this. That's it a- is possible sometimes with the right levers. That's amazing. That's amazing. The right place at the right time by the sounds of it. And then just taking those opportunities. I like that a lot. Um, I've realized actually we have a, we, we did two things on Twitter. Not only did we have the poll of which celebrity had uh, interfered with your research, we actually uh, asked people for questions that we should put to you. And I'm really, I'm really keen to do this because I'm aware that we'll run out of time otherwise. And I want to, uh, you know, I want to uh, do our followers right. Um, so I'm going to ask you a Twitter question now, Hugo. Are, are you ready? Oh, I am ready. Yeah. Okay, so the Twitter question we received was this. Um, I'd like to ask, how much is known about cognitive visual reorientation illusions, VRIs? Some have developed an ability to turn the world around to differently perceived orientations just by thinking it. Is this by conscious firing of head direction or place cells? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know what a VRI is. I don't know whether... You, do, is, that, is that a human uh, neuroscience thing that I doesn't happen to rats? Yeah, I know who this is. This is a Twitter question from a person whose entire research is on this topic, and it's a it's a great question. It's got a nice way in, which is the the as far as I understand, the phenomenon they're looking at is that experience of you maybe come out of a subway in London. This happens to me at Ho- Hoban in London. You come out of that tube and you think, which way am I facing? And you think you're facing a particular way, and then suddenly you realise you're not. You're 180 degrees off, and your your map inside your head has to just spin. So you have this visual orientation illusion of like this, this space you've been disoriented in is not how you thought it was. And indeed, the question's right. It would be amazing to see the head direction system just yeah. jump and go crazy yeah. for a moment um, and, and the whole system kind of reorient. And there have been beautiful experiments, I think, with, with rats to see head direction circuits kind of suddenly update when the world is, they've realized, the rats realized it's not. So I think there is some evidence of head orientation, head head direction cells um, in rats doing this. But it's very hard to study in humans. So you want to put that in an MRI scanner and keep confusing and re- disorienting people and, and reliably recording it, uh, good luck, because that <laughs> that's going to be very hard. Um, but I think it's a fascinating phenomenon. I really like that that sort of what's happening in your head. And there's, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, Selena and Caswell. I actually feel slightly nauseous when that happens. If, yes. if you suddenly the world spun around, nothing's physically happened, but your mm. stomach, it's like being on a fairground ride. Um, so that's also fascinating. How interesting. Yeah, I absolutely know that sensation and it's really something quite unpleasant, I find it actually. You need to be as bad at navigating as I am. I'm I'm really I have this a lot actually, interesting. I mean recently I had to navigate from my house in South London to um to King's College Hospital for a checkup on my leg. You know, and, and those of you who know it's right next to the Shard, which is a massive landmark. And I was pretty sure I should be able to do this without you know, on my bike without looking at a map. And at some point, I lost sight of the shard. I was like, it's just over there. Kept riding. And um, I was 180 degrees off. I sort of rode along and ended up nearly heading back to my house. And it was it was exactly, it was like 180 degree uh, rotation in sort of your sense of direction. Um, it was just such an interesting experience. It's just like really aware that like I spend so long thinking about the precise angular integration of head direction circuits yeah, in the space of five minutes, I screwed it up as much as is possible and, <laughs> and was totally unaware of this and was also totally confident that I was going in the right direction as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, wow. Um, we, we rebuilt SeeHeroQuest as a tool now that anyone can use as a scientific team. So we've got a whole portal. So that means if you're running any experiment, you even, you, you know, you could, 
so long as you've got ethics is the is the idea um you can you can apply into the portal and we've got 130 registered studies now of people using see wow. request one of them we noticed was uh, in the faroe islands and another one was in indonesia so wow. it really is spreading out but we're happy for undergraduates who want to do a research project to just go in. It's all automated. So it, it, the data is sent back to people. It's all securely held by servers in Cambridge and all dealt with by a charity. So that's a really uh, perhaps a nice thing to tag on and say to anyone who listens to podcasts, anyone who's interested in spatial research or want to do something. We have a tool available. It's incredibly easy to use. And then if you wanted to compare your friends, you test it. Maybe test Caswell and Selena, we've got the 4 million people's data to, to compare the output to. So it's, it's um, and we are, we're looking to run, the other thing we're looking to run is really running a campaign next year. I want to really pick up and go global and find out more about people's health and the potentially the risk factors, we, the modifiable risk factors for, for lifestyle that may be important to understand more about for Alzheimer's disease and find out more about those with CQ request uh, globally next year. So watch the space for for what happens. But uh, right now, anyone can go in and set up a little study or a big study if they want. It's up to them. That's fantastic. Well, we'll definitely include that. Hopefully, uh, drum up more users for this fantastic, uh, fantastic data set. So I think, Hugo, we've covered an awful lot of ground. As is traditional, uh, Selena has our most important question for you. Hugo, I mean, you've told us some wonderful anecdotes, so I feel slightly bad putting extra pressure on to come up with another um, stellar fact, but we ask all of our guests, what is your favourite fact about the brain? Oh, it's, it's a really hard... So when you say what's your favourite, it's like saying, what's your favourite film or your favourite you know, book? <laughs> it's actually, I'm one of those people that just don't... I have... I have um, I'm, not, I'm not good at one thing so i'll give i'll give a i'll give some facts that i think are are ones that i've found fascinating i mean i think probably the very this is very boring facts but are actually as because everybody repeats them but just the the amount of i think the, the number of time like if you take the human brain and you rolled out all the all of the axons and dendrites around you'd loop around the earth several times or some, some incredible i don't know the exact details of it but it's it's insanely long if you lined up all the neurons um but I think for me, there are kind of strange facts. So some of the, when I was learning my neuroanatomy years ago, um, we learned about some strange syndromes and things. And they're not always very positive, these things, but the facts about the brain that there's this thalamic pain syndrome, where if you get this lesion in your thalamus, you'll end up with just your entire body in pain continually. And it's really pretty, yeah, it's like a fact about the brain. It's, it's absolutely the number one condition you never, ever want to get. And they know there's no... Back then, at least, there was no treatment for this. So mm. the fact your brain can do that to you is a bit bigger. Um, there's also a, a clinical condition of septal rage. Oh, yes. Are you two aware of this? I, I know about this. Oh, yeah. I've never heard yeah. of it. Yeah. Which, again, I was learning about the brain, the facts about the brain, that, yeah, this particular, like, a slight lesion in the septum can end up causing absolute rage, <laughs> death attack uh, mode in, in animals and humans. Um, so this idea of just a tiny nuclei in your brain can, can govern kind of, govern that kind of rage attack wow. um and, and caswell and i know is a chap in in uh, research in canada mark brandon was uh, someone we caswell and i know who's studying the medial septum that's exactly who i was just thinking, thinking of, of yeah it. yeah, yeah it's what i was thinking of yeah accidentally and activating the lateral septum and causing this like uh, vicious attack um so i think there are that those sort of facts that 
and that leads into another fact about the brain probably is the fact you've got these parental circuits. I mean, that, that line of work, if I had to restart my career again, I, I love space. I love everything I've talked about. The other possible career I go into studying parental behavior because that, that line of research right down to the particular receptors on individual groups of neurons is now becoming insane. But the idea there of circuits that are really, you can be parental or you can kill <laughs> and they're just flippable. So you can kind of turn on and off with optogenetics an animal kind of crossing a room to pick up a baby pup and, and protect it or and switch it into cross over the room and want to kill it within the flick of a, an optogenetic signal to a particular bit of the brain, I think is just remarkable. Um, so those are kind of maybe not the kind of textbook facts and you say, oh, what is it, you know, how big or small or, but, but the fact that these sort of crazy um, phenomenon going on in the brain is just, just amazing. So Hugo, that was a, a fantastic discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on uh, this episode of Brain Stories. And um, to the audience, we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's fantastic. We'd like to thank Matt Wakelin, Maya Sapir and Trevor Smart for their roles in taking Brain Stories from an idea to a fully-fledged podcast. Patrick Robinson and UCL Digital Education for editing and mixing. You can follow us on Twitter at UCL Brain Stories for updates and information about forthcoming episodes.